dayana against the grain, meditation and yoga are taught to many people behind bars. Is the focus, should the focus be on self-improvement or on fostering awareness of the structural factors that make some people far more likely to land in prison? I'm CS. Farah Godridge discusses her new book, Freedom Inside, Yoga and Meditation in the Carceral State, coming right up. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. What happens when meditation and yoga are taught behind bars? What messages are promoted or imparted to the incarcerated student practitioners? Can yoga and meditation serve a political purpose in prison? Or are there merely personal, individualized takeaways like all my suffering springs from the mind alone or I and nothing else am to blame for my incarceration. Farah Godridge, a UC Riverside-based political scientist, decided to investigate for herself. For four years, she volunteered with a number of organizations to teach yoga and meditation in prisons. She also interviewed dozens of volunteer teachers and formerly incarcerated practitioners of meditation and yoga. Her findings are laid out in a new book called Freedom Inside, Yoga and Meditation in the Carceral State. Today's program has a hybrid format. First, Farah Godridge prepared, at our request, a talk in which she lays out some of her key observations and central arguments. Then, to get at other aspects and dimensions of freedom inside, I engage Farah in some Q&A. We begin with Farah's talk. So I'd like to begin with a story about two people I interviewed, both of whom had served time in prison. The first guy is named Lee, and he had served over 22 years. Now, like so many others who have done time, Lee describes a very difficult childhood that's marked by poverty and addiction and trauma and abuse and discrimination. By the age of 15, he had joined a gang, and by the age of 17, he was incarcerated. Now, when I spoke with Lee, he described his transformation in prison and he attributed it to his meditation practice. And this is what Lee said. He said, as I got more involved with Buddhism and meditation, I realized I created my own suffering. It's a choice I made that led to all the suffering within myself. I was not accepting responsibility for my poor choices. I was blaming everybody for my suffering, but I had to blame myself. It all comes down to the choices you make in life. That's what I got out of studying Buddhist philosophy and meditation. The whole 22 years and six months, I deserve it and accept it because I use that time wisely to better myself. So that's Lee. Now, in contrast, let's hear from Dylan, who's another person I interviewed. He is in his late 20s. He also grew up severely disadvantaged in the foster care system. He bounced in and out of group homes and special education institutions, and he began using drugs to cope and eventually served five years on substance abuse charges. Now, Dylan offered a very different interpretation of meditation that was developed both during and after his incarceration. Dylan said, meditation practice teaches us to see our conditioning. It taught me how to think and how to inquire not just internally, but also externally. So as a result, he said, his practice gave him what he called a moral compass to critique an unjust world. He says, this entire system of mass incarceration clearly causes suffering. Why do we have such long sentences? Why don't we give more leeway to folks who come from rough backgrounds? Where did I learn that it's okay to get a 10 year sentence for having a bag of cocaine? Now, Dylan reports that his meditation practice also inspired nonviolent resistance. He says, I became much less fearful. I would just tell the officers, no, that's not fair. You don't have a right to do this. I wasn't aggressive either. I was just like, no, you're not going to keep pushing me around. And the things that used to make me afraid no longer made me tremble in the same way. Now, these contrasting perspectives that I just shared present a kind of a paradox. In one case, the meditative teachings are interpreted as accepting one's external circumstances 
And in the other case, they cause the practitioner to inquire critically into the root of those circumstances. In one case, they seem to involve the belief that your circumstances, including your suffering, are all self-created. And in the other case, they inspire a kind of a sharper and more critical examination of the systemic and collective causes of suffering. And while Lee reported avoiding all forms of resistance while he was in prison, Dylan actually says that his meditation practice gave him the strength to occasionally undertake nonviolent resistance. So in the introduction to my book, I talk about how the contradictions between these two views really motivated the entire project. I tell readers about my own personal training in these various traditions, the principles of non-reactivity and non-attachment and non-judgment that I had trained in, how I came to learn that life in the material world is transient and ultimately illusory, to see suffering as created by your own mind rather than by circumstances, and to work on accepting external circumstances as the way to releasing your inner suffering. In yogic philosophy, we see some version of these ideas in texts like the Bhagavad Gita and the Yoga Sutras. And these ideas of inward-oriented spiritual pursuit are very predominant in these traditions, doing one's duty with non-reactive acceptance and just working to detach from the fluctuations of worldly circumstances. We see very similar ideas of detachment and acceptance in many schools of Buddhism. So the question that motivated me was, what about collective suffering? Are we supposed to just accept inequity and injustice as just part of the fluctuation of life or even worse as created by our own minds? Because surely injustice, which is caused by powerful political structures, exists as a cause of collective suffering in the world, no matter how our minds choose to view it. So what, if anything, can these traditions tell us about balancing that non-reactivity and that acceptance with very justified opposition to social and political oppression? These are the questions that led me inside prisons to explore whether and how these practices could assist people, deeply vulnerable, deeply marginalized people in dealing with systemic injustice. Now, why prisons? Not everyone may consider this obvious, but the evidence has been considered for a while now pretty incontestable by people in the legal and policy and academic worlds that what we now call mass incarceration in the US is really a patently unjust and unequal system. That's a foundational premise of my book. And it's based on the overwhelming evidence we now have, not just about the staggering numbers of people who are incarcerated in this country, but also the disproportionate and exponentially higher rates at which people from minority and immigrant and poorer communities are incarcerated, the criminalization of nonviolent offenses, the legalized discrimination and disenfranchisement that typically follow people around after their incarceration, the network of entrenched interests that profit financially from imprisonment. So all of this comes together, as one scholar says, to create a situation in which the structural rules guarantee discriminatory results. So as I became increasingly aware of this very biased, unequal system, I started to notice that many organizations were offering yoga and meditation programs inside prisons. But then I wondered, how exactly were these practices being taught? Were they being taught in ways that would promote a kind of political passivity or quietism? Were they being taught as palliative tools to accept and cope and comply with a miserably unjust existence? which would make them really a recipe for the continuation of unjust power structures. You might wonder why I started to worry about this. In the recent past, we've seen a whole slew of commentaries from scholars and practitioners who have started to express a great deal of concern about how these traditions were being taught in the West. Their main concern was that people were overemphasizing the kind of inward-oriented, private, individualized aspects of these teachings, which can encourage us to see all misfortune as largely of our own making, 
while ignoring or downplaying the systemic causes of social and political suffering. And several of these critics have said that meditation in the West has become a banal form of spirituality that avoids social and political transformation and instead reinforces the status quo. Corporations and governments and militaries and other powerful institutions have co-opted these practices as techniques for social control and pacification. We see that mindfulness is taught to corporate employees for greater productivity and adaptation to stressful workplace conditions, but there's no acknowledgement of the economic structures that create these stressful conditions in the first place. Similarly, these practices are taught to students in public schools to make them more calm or more disciplined, but no critical inquiry is given into structures like race and class, which serve as the very source of that stress. And very similar claims have been made about yoga, that it encourages its practitioners to see everything in terms of private thoughts and behaviors while tolerating discomfort in outer circumstances. And so it can end up supporting dominant or unjust political arrangements, even if unwittingly. And the concern that is really arising here is that these traditions and practices can end up as apologists for a worldview called neoliberalism, a view that insists on individual choice and behavior as the catch-all solution to everything. So neoliberalism takes the logic of the market and applies it to everything, and it assumes that if individuals behave correctly, then all collective issues will sort themselves out. And in turn, this kind of a view lets power structures off the hook and it gives them an excuse for maintaining an unequal status quo while putting the entire burden of change on individuals. One way to think about it is through the example of um, environmental awareness and consciousness where we hear this often repeated message that, oh, individuals should take responsibility for recycling and conserving resources and consuming mindfully in order to save the environment. And this is a really specious argument that assigns responsibility to individuals, but masks the role of governments and corporations, which use resources at exponentially higher rates than individuals do. So there's a concern that in the same way, these practices are just causing everyone to look inward while ignoring the collective and systemic issues. Now, these commentaries, these critiques, certainly struck a chord with me, but they did not capture for me the entire story. Because I knew from my own personal experience and training that yoga and meditation practices could also be transformative in ways that give people tools to develop their critical capacities. They can allow us to cultivate more expansive ways of seeing the world and more awareness of the systemic and collective causes of suffering. And I had learned this from being a student of the thought and work of Gandhi. I had discovered from reading Gandhi's work that being a practitioner of yoga or meditation was not exclusive with critique or activism. Quite the contrary. In fact, for Gandhi, spiritual pursuit requires contemplating injustice. Gandhi taught that Practices like yoga and meditation were tools for us to act politically, assertively, disruptively, but of course nonviolently in response to injustice. And many uh, modern reinterpreters of these traditions have actually echoed his ideas. They have shown us that acceptance does not need to equal passivity and that these techniques for internal calm and peace can also allow for acting productively upon our justifiable anger. So the question that drives my book is, how do these complex forces work when self-disciplinary practices like yoga and meditation are taught inside an unjust system? Can they encourage incarcerated people to internalize and comply with this idea that improving yourself is the only appropriate response to systemic injustice? Or can they encourage people to develop more nuanced forms of self-improvement? to engage in critical and non-conformist thinking and to challenge the logic of the system. 
Can they encourage people to go beyond thinking just about how I can improve myself to thinking critically about how this suffering is being caused collectively? These are the questions that motivated my inquiry and they motivated me to take my own practice inside prisons to investigate how these practices were being taught. So between August of 2016 and March of 2020, I volunteered with organizations that were offering yoga and meditation in local prisons and jails. My goal was to learn how these practices were being taught to people incarcerated at these institutions. And I tried to get at this question in a variety of ways through my personal experiences of volunteer work, through observing and participating in yoga and meditation classes inside several different facilities, through interviewing both prison volunteers and formerly incarcerated practitioners of yoga and meditation, and finally by writing and co-authoring with two of my yoga students who were at the time incarcerated. So I'll now briefly highlight some of the research results and key findings that emerged from these different approaches and perspectives that I used. And here I'll focus mainly on what I learned from my volunteer work, from my interviews with formerly incarcerated people, and from my collaboration with my incarcerated students. The first and most important thing I learned is that prisons are places where inequality and subordination are taught, learned, and reproduced. There is an educational function of the prison, and that is to reinforce the second-class citizenship of so many of its inhabitants. Now, how does it do this? One of the most insidious things about the prison system is that it teaches the idea of individual responsibility despite well-documented disparities due to race or socioeconomic status. That's Farah Godrej, that's G-O-D-R-E-J, talking about her new book, Freedom Inside, with a question mark, Yoga and Meditation in the Carceral State. Farah is Associate Professor of Political Science at University of California, Riverside. I'm CS, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. We return to more of Farah's remarks. So prisons and jails are full of self-help and psychology programs, programs like substance abuse or anger management or parenting classes, these are just a few examples, which emphasize behavioral changes to make better choices and inculcate a sense of personal responsibility. So these rehabilitative programs keep forcing people to repeat the message that only, only their own flawed individual choices and lack of discipline are responsible for their incarceration. And any attempt to point to structural or systemic inequity, to things like race or poverty, these are considered evidence of resistance to rehabilitation and they can lead to negative assessments by prison staff, which can in turn affect people's chances for early release or parole. So as a result, I found that many incarcerated persons adopt the prison's view of themselves as diseased or flawed, and they learn to recast their life story in a way that emphasizes their own moral blameworthiness. So many scholars have argued that these self-help and therapeutic programs in prisons function to keep the already excluded in their place. In other words, they're sort of stuck treading water on a cycle which starts with them being sent to prison because they're already marginalized or disadvantaged in the first place. Then they get set up to fail upon release due to all the legalized forms of exclusion and discrimination that they face. So all of this virtually guarantees their return to prison. And the whole time they have to learn to parrot the message of their own flaws and they're forced to deny the existence of systemic oppression. So many people can end up in a posture of accommodation that's just focused on accepting the status quo and learning to navigate it better. Even while they're of course confronting a system that is designed to ensure their repeated return to prison. Here I'll quote from one of my interviewees named Sandra who said, some may say it is all my fault. There is nothing I can do about it and leave more disempowered than when they came in. Maybe I just better go along with it and be done with it. You just keep your head down she says. So people can become what one scholar calls democratic pariahs. 
They become politically alienated, marginalized, disempowered, and subordinated because they keep being told by an entire system that everything is their own fault, even though we have mountains of research that shows us how completely the deck is stacked against these communities and populations. So this is the context into which yoga and meditation programs are entering. They're entering a context where an entire state-sponsored apparatus of pacification and control and docility and compliance is at work. It's what Michelle Alexander calls the genius of the current caste system. She says the system depends for its legitimacy on the widespread belief that all those who appear trapped at the bottom actually chose their fate. So we have good reason to be concerned about the co-opting of yoga and meditation, to think beyond the very simple and reductive view that these practices are always therapeutically beneficial, and to ask instead whether they contribute to or reinforce these forms of social control. So now I want to describe what I learned from my research. I conducted in-depth semi-structured interviews with people who were formerly incarcerated and who had practiced yoga or meditation while they were incarcerated. In these interviews, a few common themes emerged. All of my respondents used yogic or meditative practices as tools for coping with and surviving the harshness, the chaos, and the difficulty of the prison environment. I'll quote here from some of the people I interviewed. One of them said, it was a grounding experience in the turmoil. It really helped me calm my thoughts. It gave you a safe space to go where you could step away from the chaos around you. Many of them spoke about how these practices allowed them to survive the dehumanizing and the isolation that they faced during their prison time. One of them says, meditation gave me control of the levers of my sanity because I knew the environment was robbing me of my humanity. I witnessed a lot of poor treatment, a complete disregard for the humanity in us. I would do some breathing, some meditation, and it definitely provided some relief. And one woman reports, she says, I felt like a human being again in my yoga classes being human enough and valued enough to be offered this experience. Many of my participants talked about how the practices allowed them to slow down, to quiet the mind, to sit with the reality of their situation and process it in a healthy way. But beyond all of these common themes that emerged, I did find to some extent that my respondents' views could be categorized in two distinct ways. The first way was characterized by the majority of my respondents who offered this kind of narrative. They were fully accepting personal responsibility for their own incarceration and they saw prison time as time for individual self-transformation. Now their stories converged largely around themes of personal defects and poor decision making, having only themselves to blame and only themselves to improve. And for these respondents, yoga and meditation seemed to solidify this idea that they needed to reflect on bad choices to hold themselves accountable. And strikingly, I saw this even among those who insisted that their actions were not criminal or that their incarceration was not fully legitimate. Even these participants enthusiastically endorsed the idea that they were there to transform themselves. So for instance, let me quote from my conversation with Danny who described a very difficult life of poverty and racial discrimination and disadvantage. And Danny ended up serving 21 years for being involved in an attempted robbery in which he neither discharged a weapon nor injured anyone. Now for this, he was offered a plea deal of four consecutive life sentences. And he and his co-defendants chose to go to trial. And he describes a trial process that was full of procedural irregularity and conflict of interest and all kinds of allegations of misconduct, which left him feeling that his sentence was deeply unjust. And so he describes how he had a great deal of resentment and frustration when he began his prison term and eventually found all of that dissolving into acceptance. So he said, I've come to accept my time. I deserve it. Your own action causes your karmic situation. I did the crime, so I'm responsible for any consequences. 
Now, Danny identifies his med meditation practice as a major factor in this change of perspective. He says, instead of trying to blame everything on the outside situation, I internalized it more. Like if someone is angry at me, well, what did I do to make him angry? That's really the teaching of the Buddha, right? Your mind is the creation of events or situations, whether good or bad. Now, in contrast to this, the second group of respondents held extremely resistant views, both regarding the system and their own incarceration. These respondents refused to accept the prison's narrative that they alone were responsible for their own fate and instead talked about social and political arrangements which contributed. Here, for instance, is Sean, who's a black man in his 50s who had spent almost 33 years incarcerated. And here's what Sean says. He says, how can the system not be held responsible for creating an environment that makes it almost implausible for an individual not to have contact with law enforcement and statistically wind up in jail or prison if you come from a socioeconomically depressed community or you're a person of color. I got caught in a mouse trap. It was set up to be like this. I'll quote again from Sandra, who I quoted from earlier. Sandra is a black woman who details also a life of poverty and homelessness and racism and abuse. Sandra served over two decades for accidentally killing her assailant while defending herself during a sexual assault. And she says, I definitely want to be held accountable, but is the law telling me that I should not have fought back? Should I have taken the bullet so that I'd be more believable? Where was the law when I was getting beat, having cigarette burns on me, when I was raped, when I filed multiple restraining orders? And the one time I fight back, it's my fault? It just seems like more victim blaming, she says. So for respondents like these, yoga and meditation really offered them a more critical perspective on their incarceration. Emil says, Emil was one of my most enthusiastic respondents. He says that these practices made me see more clearly, understanding the complexity and seeing incarceration as a systemic problem, realizing that the system is messed up. All the programs in prison encourage you to ignore the systemic level and think it's all my fault. Instead, my meditations just shifted my viewpoint and they helped me understand what had happened to me. Respondents like Emil also talked about how yoga or meditation could reinforce the passivity that the prison teaches them. Emil said, it really initially resonated with me this idea of I put myself here, I deserve this, we're coming to fix you, there's something wrong with you. And the docility it can create is rather sad and tragic. Another participant, Chloe, says, the basic premises of acceptance of the moment, of your lot in life and everything being transient, all this reinforces the idea that we should just accept incarceration. And Dylan, who I quoted earlier, points out that injustice is often not taught in yoga or meditation. There's sometimes a lot of subservience. It can be very pacifying and maybe that's why it's promoted in prison. So what I want to point out here is that yoga and meditation seemed to reinforce the prison's logic of flawed individuals. But for other respondents, these practices seemed to present a more explicit form of resistance to the prison's narrative. This resistance was mostly internal, that is, it was pertaining to how people saw themselves, but in a few cases it was also external in that it was allowing people to act in resistant ways. But the majority of my respondents really showed how yogic and meditative practices could perpetuate the silence around the structural inequities that are so clearly responsible for mass incarceration. Many of them seem to internalize the idea that their unjust or miserable reality must primarily be of their own choosing. Many of them withdrew into a kind of acceptance of their fate and just focused on improving themselves as the solution to this. Even as they spoke of injustices that were visited on the poor and the homeless and on minorities, yet they adopted narratives of their own intrinsic failings. The second group of respondents used yoga and meditation to cultivate self-improvement, but in a way that entailed a very keen awareness of structural forces. 
They described a sense of freedom in which self-improvement became an act of resistance to an oppressive system. So in this group, they were distinguished by a more oppositional or resistant consciousness. This resistant perspective was articulated very clearly in the piece of writing that was co-authored by myself and two of my incarcerated students, who at the time were leading a yogic philosophy study group in one of the prisons that I was volunteering in. And in the book, I talk a bit more about how all of this came about and how these co-authors discuss the truly transformative potentials of yoga philosophy and practice. So I'll quote briefly here from one of my co-authors who says, there is a difference between simply using yoga and meditation to relax, to become passive, to just feel better about your situation, and using it to meet challenge in a constructive way. I remember one of the yoga teachers giving us instructions about holding a difficult pose one day, and she talked about recognizing your discomfort, but then using that discomfort to meet challenge by developing your knowledge. We're not just using yoga and mindfulness to accept the discomfort, but to take it and to have more defined vision, to see things for what they are and to meet challenges head on. So to conclude, what I'm offering here is a contrast between two models of yoga and meditation in prisons, which can encourage very different ways of being in the world. One model is based solely on individual improvement combined with acceptance and coping. The other is based on a more capacious self-improvement that fosters critique of the standard narratives that perpetuate unjust systems. The first model can give disadvantaged people the message that they should just deal with their own discomfort and transcend their circumstances and get better at adjusting to and accepting them. The second model focuses on self-improvement like the first model, but in so doing, it seeks to transform people's understandings of the systemic factors that shape their lives. And as a result, it can have a liberating effect on both individual and group consciousness. I do wanna end by cautioning that these two narratives or models that I've offered here are not mutually exclusive. They do sometimes overlap. In other words, this binary between compliance and resistance is useful to some extent in helping us understand the perspectives of incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people, but it doesn't capture the entire story. Beyond that binary lies an important common theme, which is how incarcerated persons can assert their internal freedom and control in the face of institutionalized violence and dehumanization. Despite the obvious differences in these perspectives, both of these sets of respondents were concerned with an internal freedom that defies the institution's capacity to control and define their lived experience. A freedom that they were able to achieve through practices of self-control and self-discipline. And that's why the book is ultimately called Freedom Inside. Farah Godridge, UC Riverside-based political scientist, talking about her new book, Freedom Inside, Yoga and Meditation in the Carceral State. You are listening to Against the Grain. I'm C.S. Song. We move now to some Q&A about her book. So Farah, formerly incarcerated practitioners you spoke to had certain things to say, uh, certain warnings to give to meditation and yoga volunteer teachers in prison. What sorts of warnings did they give? Yeah, so I'll just quote directly from some of them to give you a sense of the sorts of warnings uh, they wanted to issue to people who volunteered in prisons. So I'll quote, for instance, from Emil, who said, there's this misguided idea among volunteers that if I equip them, meaning incarcerated people, with emotional intelligence, then that's better for society. And they're failing to realize that no one was born wanting to punch people in the face. So here, what Emil is pointing to is this idea that so many volunteers who came into prisons with the best of intentions often had such little understanding of the kind of structural and systemic 
factors that shaped the lives of so many of the incarcerated people they worked with. And they were so wedded to the idea that these were just, you know, criminogenic individuals who just needed to learn better behavior. Another person, Monique, said, and I'll quote directly from her, she said, there's this savior complex that comes with it. Even though their intentions are very good, they're talking down to us all the time. I don't need somebody else coming in here and telling me what's wrong with me and how to fix it. Don't come in here and assume that because you see me here, you know who I am. Just stop diagnosing. Stop saying this is what you deserve. So again, here we find right that so many volunteers go into prison thinking they know that people who are incarcerated right are just flawed and all they have to do is learn how to make better choices and many of my respondents really rejected that narrative i also want to read at length from sandra who i think i actually think it's just best to hear directly from my interviewees because they're so eloquent that you know, they, they, they can say it almost better than I can. So I'll quote at length from Sandra. Sandra says, so many of us are willing to accept responsibility, but we're saying that it took society, the totality of circumstances, both in and out of my control to get me where I am. None of that seems to matter. My being conditioned to fight, the abuse I suffered at home and in relationships, the sexual assaults at gunpoint, none of those mattered. The law says, so what if that happened to you? You're a criminal now, you must take responsibility for those things. And then we get in here, meaning prison, and we're trying to put the pieces of our life together. And in the one place where I would like to think our stories would be validated, we get into these meditative classes where the volunteers say, oh, we're gonna do the same thing that the rest of society has done to you, tell you it's your fault. And the sooner you accept it, the better life will be. So when these practices are focused solely on personal responsibility and accountability, it can be very disempowering, especially for so many of us who have been assaulted, abused, and told over and over again how powerless we are, to turn around and say, you have the power, it's your fault. It's hard to reconcile those. So that's Sandra, and I don't think I could say it any better than she has. Well, in fact, you also interviewed people who volunteer to go into prisons to teach meditation and yoga. You interviewed 36 volunteers. What sorts of things did they tell you about how yoga and meditation might help incarcerated people? So I interviewed a mix of people. Some were fellow volunteers in the local communities that I was already volunteering in, so I knew many of them personally. and. Others I did not know personally, they were from other parts of the country and from other organizations doing similar work elsewhere. And I found again, very similar to what I found in interviewing my formerly incarcerated participants that there were sort of two kinds of narratives that emerged. There was a predominant narrative and what I call a dissenting narrative. And the predominant response to the question of, you know, why teach yoga or meditation in prisons was, oh, to make incarcerated people better and therefore reduce crime. This idea that incarcerated people must improve themselves, right, through better choices and, you know, more responsibility. And this idea really that social and political change requires inner change by individuals. So again, I think it's just best illustrated if I quote directly from some of these conversations. So this is someone named Shankar, who's a monk, actually. And he says that practices like yoga and meditation reform the incarcerated person to become a better human being. He says that people who go to prison, they are doing bad things and somebody needs to teach them and show them the path. Another person said, these practices serve as behavioral rehabilitative aids. How can you manage yourself? How can you control your impulses in a way that allows you to stay out of trouble and calm down and control your reactions and become more accountable and less impulsive, right? So among the people who offered this predominant narrative, I saw a great deal of stereotyping, right? These sweeping generalizations about incarcerated individuals who, you know, need instruction about how to live in society. And, you know, people would say things like, oh, it's great that we're helping people even if they're evil or animal or unevolved. You know, some really, really troubling, sweeping generalizations and, and stereotypes. 
the second more dissenting, what I characterize as a more dissenting view, would say that, you know, these practices are means to skillfully navigate an unjust system by preserving your own sense of self. So there is still an emphasis on self-transformation and interchange, but with a very different focus, with an insistence on situating that self-improvement within the acknowledgement of systemic injustice. So again, I'll quote here from one person who says, yoga is a form of self-regulation, not so that we can be okay when things are wrong, but so that we can develop strategies for liberation in a more effective way. If we have stopped with tolerating discomfort, we have become a tool for keeping people down. So a lot of the people in this second group really rejected this idea of rehabilitation. And they said things like, I'm not sure that these people needed rehabilitation as much as they needed support. Because the things that got them in there, like prostitution and drug use, were not things that they had any control over. One of my interviewees in this more dissenting group, I think provided again, just such a, such a perfect illustration of the pernicious or insidious nature of these practices potentially. He said, the idea that you can make a slave on a plantation happier, but he's still a slave on a plantation. Or teaching them how to deal with their anxiety or their anger. So they're feeling better and they're less likely to come back to prison. They've been able to deal with their stress, but they haven't necessarily been able to understand and respond to the collective causes of what's going on. Another person said, you know, North American yoga culture is largely uninformed about social and political issues, not deeply interested in them, and that yoga culture in North America has a tendency to think of yoga as something apolitical, right? And another person said, you know, these yogic ideas are often used in a very apolitical, anti-intellectual way without any critical thinking. These fluffy ideas like, oh, everything happens for a reason, or that's their karma right? These ideas where we don't have to confront anything difficult. So I would just summarize by saying, you know, I heard from volunteers who expressed, again, this very predominant narrative in which the focus was on changing people, reforming individuals, encouraging people to look within for the answers to their problems, and, you know, pathologizing incarcerated people as criminal and undisciplined and unevolved. But in contrast, that second narrative, you know, rejected this idea that you can address a systemic political problem by just making individuals better, right? And the idea there was making people better does not equal social justice. In other words, we have to combine self-discipline with the political goals of challenging, disrupting, and being subversive and less submissive, less accepting of the prison's logic and authority, at least an outlook, if not in actions. Farah Godridge, she teaches political science at University of California, Riverside. Her new book is Freedom Inside, question mark, Yoga and Meditation in the Carceral State. And I'm CS, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So how would you evaluate the teaching of yoga and meditation in prison by people who, who don't have the critical political awareness, who aren't willing to engage in a, maybe a sort of political education and critique and dialogue with incarcerated people. Is that helpful? Is that productive? Does it do more harm than good? What do you think? Well, I would apply the criteria that I actually describe at length in chapter seven and eight and nine of my book, um, where I contrast the different kinds of organizations that I studied and trained with. And I personally would model all teaching by prison volunteers on the approach of one organization that I describe actually, which offers a training to its volunteers in which the organization is very explicit and direct about understanding the collective and systemic causes of incarceration instead of reducing everything to individual actions or choices. And at this training, the leaders of this organization pointed out something really, really important. They said that, you know, well-meaning, self-care and wellness programs can run the risk of reinforcing oppression if they try to silence marginalized individuals by asking them to calm down and focus only on their bad choices. And the leader of that organization said, you know, when we suggest that people calm down and breathe, it's almost like silencing them. 
They should be angry. They should be indignant because being incarcerated has nothing to do with the fact that they made a bad choice. People from all walks of life make bad choices, but if you're a person of color, if you're low income, if you're an immigrant, you're more likely to be criminalized for that bad choice. I think another way that I'd like to talk about this actually is by quoting one of the volunteers I interviewed named Claire, who talked about the 100, 200% model of responsibility. And Claire says, the 100% reality is that you, the incarcerated person, caused harm. And the other 100% is that you were also nested in a system that you had no control over, and it wasn't your fault. What happened to you wasn't fair. We actually care more about what's going on when we acknowledge that both of these things are true. So I would say that it would be quite unfair to simplistically applaud and encourage choice and ownership and responsibility to those who actually have very few choices in life and who are virtually guaranteed to continue being denied these choices. And it seems absurd to reductively teach people that they can change anything through the power of their mind when in fact the world is so systemically stacked against so many of them. There are Christian and Judeo-Christian programs operating and chaplains present behind bars, uh, interacting with incarcerated people. And I'm wondering how uh, these people and how uh, these programs view the teaching of yoga and meditation in prison. Yes, that's a great question. So, you know, it's important to note the history um, of chaplaincy in prisons. And what's important to know is that for a long time, predominant faiths like Christianity were Judaism and Judaism were the only faith traditions that were legally available in prisons. So that the advent of these non-Western or non-Abrahamic traditions inside prisons is a relatively recent phenomenon. Now, one of the things I've found is that competition for time and resources inside prisons is fierce. Volunteer groups are constantly competing with one another for time, for space, for logistical resources, and prison administrators are often forced by virtue just of sheer, you know, lack of resources, they're forced to side with or prioritize one group over another. And as a result, I found that relations between faith groups and prisons can sometimes be fraught with a sense of territoriality. We heard anecdotally about Christian chaplains inside some of the prisons issuing warnings to their congregants or students about the incompatibility of yoga and meditation with Christian faith commitments. Our students would come to us and say, oh, they're telling us that yoga is the work of the devil. They're telling us you cannot come to our services or our groups if you are a yogi or a meditator. And there just appeared to be a great deal of anxiety and concern about, you know, um, proselytizing, um, that, that somehow, you know, these Christians would somehow be converted to Hinduism or Buddhism. And we would hear these reports from our students, from fellow volunteers, and actually occasionally from prison officials who would sort of sheepishly admit that they were forced, you know, to give priority to Christian groups. I should say that there was rarely ever any competition or antagonism with Jewish chaplains or groups, which seemed, at least in my experience, and again, this is just, you know, my own experience that, they, that these groups seemed overall much more ecumenical, much more open to yoga and meditation, much more likely to see it as compatible with their faith. And in fact, many Jewish volunteers in prisons were yoga practitioners. So I would say that this phenomenon I'm describing was mostly restricted to uh, Christian chaplains and groups. Some people might put uh, the practice of resistance let's say, to the status quo, in opposition to docility, a sort of quietism on the part of a person who is, let's say, facing injustice. What's your sense of whether resistance to the status quo must be expressed outwardly? In other words, whether people's inner lives can or cannot also be an arena of resistance, a meaningful arena of resistance? This is one of the things I came to see in the course of my research. And, you know, I was really pushed through the field work I did and through the people I encountered to, you know, reconsider and transform some of the intuitive provisional hunches with which I began the project. 
And so I really came to see the power and resonance of self-improvement, which gave incarcerated people a sense of control over their own fate. So indeed, precisely as you say, I came to see that there were so many creative and ingenious ways in which people were making meaningful choices to challenge the prison system's logic in ways that might not necessarily look like resistance. People might learn to seem obedient or passive. One of my colleagues called this a kind of sheen of conformity. But meanwhile, many of them were able to feel more in control of themselves, more powerful, more liberated, not necessarily because they were openly challenging orders by prison staff, but because they were able to think about themselves in different ways inside their own minds. So I would say that I was really pushed and challenged in a very healthy way to consider that there is not a simple binary of docility versus resistance. And that beyond that binary, there's a way in which people's inner lives can become a crucial arena of resistance. That people can have the capacity to connect to their own strength, their own humanity, their own intrinsic sense of value and dignity in the midst of institutionalized violence. So you can defy the system's capacity to define you and your lived experience, and you can still feel human despite these indignities that you routinely suffer because these practices have become your armor, right? They have become a tool for people to survive the psychic and physical assaults on their beings. Farah Godridge, F-A-R-A-H, G-O-D-R-E-J. She's Associate Professor of Political Science at UC Riverside, author of Cosmopolitan Political Thought, Method, Practice, Discipline, We've been talking about her new book out from Oxford University Press. It's called Freedom Inside, Yoga and Meditation in the Carceral State. Afara, thanks so much for writing this book and for joining us today. Thank you for having me, CS. It's been a pleasure. And this is CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against.